So, um, well, good morning. How are we today? The opening of the beaches. It's that time of the year where everybody's fighting for parking spaces on Sunday right here around the church. It's fun times, but this is where we live. Everybody wants to be here. Isn't that cool that we live here and everybody wants to be here? So just part of what you have to deal with from, you know, the spring to the fall, but we live in a great place. So, well, as Derek mentioned, my name is Dan. I'm one of the elders here at Ocean City Church, and um, we've been in a series titled Ain't No Grave. And what we've been doing is we, we looked at starting with Thursday um, of the Holy Week. We looked at Thursday, we looked at Friday, we looked at Saturday, and then last week was Easter Sunday. Seems like ages ago, doesn't it? We were on the beach last week. Remember that? Who was there? It's awesome, beautiful backdrop. It's amazing to be able to, another great thing about the beach, be able to do a sunrise service um, every Easter and occasionally throughout the year, we've done them as well. But um, so last week was Sunday. It was all about the resurrection. That's, what, that's the reason that we celebrate Easter. And then I was given the task of talking about Monday. So I got a case of the Mondays and took me a while this week to actually dig into it. And the truth is we don't really know what happened on Monday. <laughs> So let's pray. Uh, But we know some things happened while Jesus was on earth after the resurrection, before the ascension. And so um, today we're going to look at what what did happen after the resurrection. Specifically, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 24. And what's interesting about the account of Jesus's time on earth from the time of that um, he came out of the tomb until the time he ascended into heaven. And we, and we know, so obviously Luke wrote Luke, but Luke also wrote Acts. And we know that Luke mentions in Acts chapter one that Jesus was on earth for 40 days. And so you know over that 40-day period, there were encounters, there were experiences, there were stories to be told. Um, but what's interesting here is that Luke only gives us three accounts. So we see in in Luke chapter 24, the first thing is the women at the tomb. Second thing is the road to Emmaus. And then the third account was with the disciples um, in the upper room. So we have to believe that not only did these things happen, but there's, there's something that Luke is trying to teach us by just recounting these three stories, because obviously there were probably a lot of stories to be told, but it's something about these three stories that he's preserved for us that teaches us something about the resurrection, which is what we're going to look at today. And so um, let's start by going to the text. We're going to look at Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 13, going through 35. It says, now that that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. 
And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went and stayed with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 and those with, and those with them assembled together saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them um, when he broke the bread. I love God's word. I love these stories. I love knowing that these things actually happened and that there's something that we can learn from them. So we're going to start out with a couple of observations about the verses um, today, and then look at some practical ways that we can encounter Jesus. So a few observations, we'll talk about those, and then end with um, some practical ways um, that we can encounter Jesus. The first thing, first observation is their spiritual blindness. So it says in verse 17, Jesus asked them, what are you discussing as you walk along? And I love how Jesus just shows up on the road, just walking along with them. He's, what are you talking about? And it says that they stood still. And I, I didn't realize this until I had read kind of putting all three of these stories together, but it says they stood still, their faces downcast. And then if you look at the, they said their faces were downcast. They said, look, are you the only one that has no idea what's been going on in, in these days in Jerusalem? The other two accounts in Luke talks about the women um, were filled with fear um, at the tomb. And then later on with the disciples, it said that they were fear, fearful and afraid. So why were they in despair? Why is that what we're seeing here? And there's, there's really two reasons. One is a general reason, and then one is a specific reason. First, the general reason. General reason is that they were looking at life without a resurrection. They were looking at life without a resurrection. And when it came to Jesus's ministry, from their perspective, this was the end. When it came to even contemplating death and what would happen with their lives, that meant uh, death was gonna be the end for them. But if you think about this, anyone, anyone who looks at life and says, this is all there is, this is it, that's gonna lead to despair. Back then, no one could deny the resurrection. Again, we have says he appeared to over 200 people over that 40-day period. So no one could deny the resurrection actually happened as a true event. But even, even the enemies of God couldn't deny it. In fact, 25 years later, from when this was written in Luke, we see in Acts chapter 20, 
6, Paul is on trial before Festus and King Agrippa. And Paul says to King Agrippa, he says, even you're familiar with these things, and none of it has escaped notice because it did not happen off in some corner somewhere. That this happened, and even you, um, King Agrippa, know these things to be true. Everyone would have had an understanding concerning what had happened in Jerusalem in those days, what had happened to Jesus. I mean, remember they said... um, you know, are you, the, are you the only one that has no idea what's been going on in these days? So everyone would have had some understanding, but without the resurrection, like the two on the road, it leads to despair. I love how Tim Keller puts it. He puts it very bluntly, but I thought it was worth mentioning to you guys. Tim Keller says, if your origin is insignificant and your destiny is insignificant, then have the guts to admit that your life and all lives are insignificant. So think about this. If we came from nothing, if we came from some, I don't know, meta explosion forming, fish crawling out of the way, you know, then, then think about what, what does that mean as far as life being insignificant? If, if there is no destiny, that when we die, we just are left to rot in the ground, then there is no significance to life. Your lives are insignificant. Think about in a day where, you know, what, what is the, what's the call of the day? What, you, fill in the blank, lives matter, right? Black lives matter, blue lives matter, these lives matter, all lives matter, right? Well, it begs the question, why? Why do we, why do we believe that lives matter? Because if your origin is insignificant and your destiny is insignificant, then life is insignificant. If death is the end, and if everything is insignificant, then think about it. Racism, oppression, the things that happen in this world, construct, they're really just mental constructs in your, that your mind is imposing on a seemingly meaningless reality, right? That these, if, if, if there is no origin, Origin is insignificant and destiny is insignificant, then life is really insignificant. And these things like racism and oppression, they're just mental constructs in our mind that we're trying to make sense of a meaningless reality. The only way to live life, life as if people matter, life has meaning, life has hope, is to know that there is a resurrection. This is what the resurrection is about. It changes everything for you and for me, and for the world. There is no middle ground. There is, oh, maybe, the re-, like, if it happened, it changes everything. So they were looking at life without a resurrection. That was the first thing. That was the general one. In a more specific way, Jesus was right there with them, and they didn't recognize him, which I think is so interesting in the story. And we know something, something here is, is changed with Jesus. Something is different about Jesus. The women at the tomb didn't recognize them. The two men on the road didn't recognize them. We know that the disciples um, didn't recognize him either. And in this encounter, it says they they were kept from recognizing him. They were kept from recognizing. So why couldn't they see him? And I was thinking if I was gonna make up a story about the risen Christ, what he would look like would probably be different than what, than the accounts that the gospel gives us. 
which probably means that it's true, right? Because it's not some elaborate made-up story, but why couldn't they see him? There's two reasons why they couldn't see him. First one, he was so ordinary. Jesus was so ordinary. And why was he so ordinary? He was ordinary because our future, our destiny, is not some weird and abstract, strange future. Our future is a homely future. It's a physical future, and it's a spiritual future. A physical future and a spiritual future. What do I mean by that? Okay, I tried to kind of think this out on paper, but go with me here for a second. This is crazy. Jesus is really there with them physically. He broke bread. What does the story say? He broke bread and then he was gone. He disappeared. And later in chapter 24, when he um, goes to be with the disciples, I, he may have just teleported right from breaking bread to now he's inside of the upper room because we know it just says he passed through the door. The door was locked. He didn't use the door anymore. He just went through the door. He says, look at my hands, look at my feet. And the disciples were having a hard time believing it. And then he says, hey, you got anything to eat? It's kind of weird, right? They gave him some fish and he ate it. And you and I were probably taught that we shouldn't stare at people while they eat, but can you just imagine the scene with the disciples there <laughs> as he's eating the fish and they're, look, they're just looking at him intently like, okay, is this like, I wanna touch him, is he real? But what does this have to do with a physical and a spiritual future? You see, we think in our human minds, we don't really have a category to put this in. We think of things in terms of a body, a physical presence, or a spiritual presence, a body or a spirit. In other words, you can pass through walls, but you can't eat fish, right? I mean, it's like, did he take a sip of water and then all of a sudden the water was pouring out of his side and, you know, like we see in the cartoons? So we think you can pass through walls, but you can't eat fish or break bread. If you think about kind of the prevailing thoughts or philosophies of the day, one of the things that's out there is this idea of secularism, which re really secularism just says the physical is all that there, there is. That the physical is, is, the real, is what's real, that's reality, and when you die, it's over. It's all about just the physical. So you, th so you think secularism on one hand, and then the, on the other hand, you think spiritual, spiritualism, What's, which says the spiritual is what is real and the physical is just temporary. And when you die, you move on to another world, another dimension, uh, some kind of metaphysical like world. Um, you become fertilizer, the circle of life, right? This, this is kind of the idea of, of spiritualism. But Jesus, not a body, not a spirit, but what, what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, so it will be with our resurrection. He calls it a spiritual body. He talks about the resurrection of the dead, a spiritual body, a permanently perfect spiritual body. And he, here's the cool thing about death. It's not some celestial experience where we're, we're, we're floating around and it's not dirt. It says Jesus takes us home. Jesus takes us home. In John, he says, I go to prepare a place for you. Father's house has many rooms. That's, we're, we're being taken home. 
in a physical and a spiritual sense. We're going to have bodies, perfect physical bodies, and we'll enjoy food. You know, we'll eat, there is a, there's a physical component to all of that. Can it be fully explained? No, but it is a spiritual and a physical. Okay, back to ordinary Jesus. Let me take an ordinary sip of water first. I think sometimes we're waiting on a voice from heaven, aren't we? How many of us in here have at one point in time in our lives just said, God, I need to hear from you. Show me that, you know, write it in the sky. Give me an audible voice from heaven where I can discern this. But sometimes Jesus puts a person. Sometimes Jesus puts a, and I dare say it, a trouble something difficult to go through, that he puts those things in our lives to pull us towards God. And that's Jesus. That is Jesus with us on the road to Emmaus. Subtle and gentle. And Jesus takes the initiative with them, but, but they don't even know he's working in their life. They're having this conversation. They have no idea. Jesus is in their midst. Jesus is working in their life. And the encouragement from that is don't wait to commit. Jesus could be working in your life and you don't even know it. And it could be through something difficult you're going through. It could be your, your, what your kids are teaching you. It could be what your work is teaching you. You know, there, there are lots of things that, that God uses, that Jesus is with us on that road to Emmaus that he's showing us. But the encouragement is don't wait to commit. Don't wait to take that step, do like what they did, where they were something that was drawing them to Jesus and Jesus was gonna continue on down the road and they said, no, please, please come eat with us. Take that initiative if you haven't done that already. Second reason they couldn't see him, they didn't realize how deeply they needed to be redeemed. So first reason was Jesus was so ordinary. Second reason, they didn't realize how deeply they needed to be redeemed. Verse 21, they, they said, uh, they crucified him, but we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. We had hoped he was the one that was going to redeem Israel. Redeem, we understand that crucifixion is, is how he redeems, right? We understand that in hindsight. We can look back and say, hey, we understand this is how the crucifixion plays into it. This is how he redeems his people. Redeem means just in the simple, simplest of terms to, to release from slavery, to release from slavery. So Cleopas, as he's saying this, he thought that his only issues in life were circumstantial. He thought that as long as Jesus could change his political circumstances, his economic circumstances, that things would be fine. When he talks about he had hoped that he would redeem Israel. But Jesus came to release us from a deeper bondage than that, than that much deeper than just changing our circumstances, changing our status. Cleopas thought that the only redemption that he needed was from Roman slavery. But the Bible teaches us that Jesus Christ came because we're all spiritually, deep in our heart, slaves. Every one of us, spiritually deep in our heart, we're slaves. Because he didn't see the spiritual bondage, he didn't think he needed another kind of redemption. And I think that that's true of us sometimes too. If you think about addiction for a moment, think about how addiction starts, right? We have an emptiness. I've experienced this in my own life. You have an emptiness. You want to fill that emptiness with something. And so 
It, it, it could be any number of things. Drugs, alcohol, sex, family, body image, food, shopping, you, you name it, our kids. The list goes on. So what's crazy about addiction is that that thing that we go to works for a little while, right? It works for a little while, but then we need more of it. We need more. I mean, physically, for a drug addict and an alcoholic, you build a physical tolerance. You need more and more of that drug or that alcohol to continue that high, but all, all addiction sort of works this way. The very thing that we, we go to to relieve stress or to fill that emptiness now becomes the thing that's causing it, and we're trapped. We're slave. We're slaves. If Jesus isn't your master, then anything you add or substitute to make you happy is addiction. If Jesus is not your master, anything that you look to to substitute or to make you happy is an addiction. And all sin is addiction. All sin is addiction when you boil it down to its most basic thing, that we're substituting, we're looking to something else to make us happy besides Jesus. Drug addicts and alcoholics understand this because it's blatantly obvious and they know that they're a slave to that drug or that alcohol. The trouble is that most of us are Cleopases. Say that five times fast, Cleopases. And they don't know that they're slaves too. And because they don't know what they're really looking for, it's what I call a Barnes and Noble spirituality, right? Give me the latest and greatest book, five ways to do this, six meditations on this, Seven practical steps to this. Give me some chicken soup for the soul. Does anybody read that anymore? Remember that book? Everybody loved that one. Everybody got it for a graduation present, right? We come to church oftentimes as sufferers wanting help from Jesus. We come as sufferers. I, there's, there's something that's drawing me to God. I'm suffering through something. I need Jesus' help. But that's much different than coming as sinners in need of redemption. Not sufferers in need of help, but sinners in need of redemption. And so how are you, what, what brings you here today? How are you approaching God today? The greater that we see the depth of our need for redemption, for, for rescue, I believe that that's direct proportion to the, the joy that we'll receive in getting that rescue and that redemption. So that's the, um, those are the two reasons why they couldn't see him. Jesus was so ordinary, and they didn't understand the depth of their need for redemption. It wasn't just a, hey, we, need re we were hoping this Jesus would release us from Roman slavery, that there was a heart condition much deeper than that that you and I have that we need to be redeemed from. So let's look at, um, lastly, how were they healed? So they're discouraged because they're looking at life without a, uh, a resurrection. They're, looking, they're discouraged because they don't see Jesus in the ordinary. They're discouraged because they really don't think they need a redeemer. And I believe that the reason that this appearance is given to us by Luke is because this is something that can happen to you and happen to me right now. Did you notice what's interesting in some of these accounts is 
as much as what it doesn't say than what it does say. And Jesus never says, hey, look, it's me. Hey, ta-da. What does he do? What does he do with these two? He opens the scriptures. I love that. He opens the scriptures. Luke is trying to show us that you and I can meet the living Christ. You can overcome your spiritual blindness if you're willing to go to the scriptures. It doesn't say that he just opened the script. He didn't just open the scripture. What does it say? Verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures about what? Concerning himself. What he's saying is that, and what we know is that the scripture, and we talk about this all the time here, but the scripture is all about him. It's all about him. And how we approach and read the Bible is vitally important to how we interpret that. There's two different ways that we can read the Bible. The first one is what I'll call a moralistic way. Second way is a gospel-centered or Christ-centered way. What do I mean by moralistic way? Story of David and Goliath. Take it as an example. David slings the stone. The giant falls. What's the moral of the story? Kind of an Aesop's fable kind of perspective, right? The bigger they are, the harder they fall. That that with God, nothing is impossible. If you try real hard, you can do anything. God will help you fight your battles. Dare to be a Daniel. Lead like Joshua. Sacrifice like Abraham. The list can go on. And at first, that, there's a piece of that that inspires. But if the Bible is all about you and it's all about me, and that's how we read it, then it will soon crush us. It will soon crush us. Jesus says the Bible is all about me, and I love um, John Calvin, who was, um, lived in the 1500s. He, he wrote a preface to a French translation of the New Testament, and this was his introduction that he wrote um, to the New Testament. He says this, He, Christ, is Isaac, the beloved son of the Father, who was offered as a sacrifice, but nevertheless did not succumb to the power of death. He is the good and compassionate brother, Joseph, who in his glory was not ashamed to acknowledge his brothers, however lowly and abject their condition. Jesus is the sovereign lawgiver, Moses, writing his law on the tables of our hearts by his spirit. He's the faithful captain and guide, Joshua, to lead us to our promised land. He is the victorious and noble King David, bringing by his hand all rebellious power to subjection. Jesus is the magnificent and triumphant King Solomon, governing his kingdom in peace and prosperity. He's the strong and powerful Samson who by his death has overwhelmed all of his enemies. This is what we should in short seek in the whole of scripture, truly to know Jesus Christ and the infinite riches that are comprised in him and are offered to us by him from God the Father. If one were to sift thoroughly the law and the prophets, he would, find, he would not find a single word which does not draw and bring us to him. Therefore, rightly does St. Paul say in another passage that he would know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You see, every good story is about Jesus. Every good story. Think about the movies that you love. There's something about Jesus in those movies that draws. And it, the Lion King, it's about Jesus. You may think it's some just kind of 
spiritualism, but it really is about Jesus. Star Wars is about Jesus. Shawshank Redemption, about Jesus. But it's only when you see, it's only when you see that he's done it for you. Not some hypothetical character, not some hypothetical sinner and a hypothetical savior. He did it for you. And we have to see that. Emmaus is always happening in our lives. Always happening. We're always on that road. This story is told to us because many of us are walking the road to Emmaus right now. We're on a seven mile journey and we're only thinking about the destination. And meanwhile, Jesus has come alongside us through a circumstance, through a hardship, through a relationship, through an experience. Wherever God has you right now, he's walking beside you and he wants to meet with you. And I encourage you, invite him in. Walk in the freedom that only he can bring. Walk in the future that only he can give. He's gonna take us home. That's the encouragement. He's not gonna send us to the dirt or bring us to some metaphysical floating experience. He's gonna take us home. And we're gonna know it's home. We're gonna know when, they're, when we're there, we're home. It's not here on earth. As much as we try and make it, it's not. Let's stand. Father, we, we thank you for we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the grave. We thank you for resurrection. God, would we understand what it means to us in our life today? God, I thank you for these stories. I thank you for the Emmaus Road. I thank you that Jesus was so ordinary. I thank you that we can know him in a personal way today. God, would we see you walking the road with us? Would we be encouraged by that? Just knowing that you're with us, God. Oftentimes we feel we've been abandoned by everybody around us, that our circumstances are never going the way that we hope that they would. But I just thank you that Jesus walks the road with us, never leaves us or forsakes us.